1: Hello and welcome to GabFest Reads for the month of June with one of my favorite journalists, Carrie Blakinger. Carrie Blakinger is an investigative reporter. She is based in Texas. She covers criminal justice and injustice for The Marshall Project. And she has a bunch of awards and accolades. I noticed Carrie's work several years ago when she was just doing kick ass reporting in Texas for the Houston Chronicle and really covering prisons in this kind of inside outside way that was really unusual. And what I didn't realize at the time is that Carrie has herself spent time in prison in New York State for drug crimes. And that's mostly the subject or at least partly the subject of her fabulous new memoir which is called Corrections in Ink and which we're going to be talking about today. Hey Carrie, how are you?
2: I'm good. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm
1: so glad you're here. Congratulations on this terrific book.
2: Thank you. I kept joking that the title sounded like it might be a tattoo memoir, so I was just going to need to spend a whole bunch of the money on tattoos, and I'm sorry that listeners can't see me, but I will just say that I did that, and I have many tattoos as a result of this whole thing. I thought that you already had many tattoos. No, it's funny. People assume this and people used to, you know, make jokes about like I have as many whatever as you have tattoos, and I actually didn't. I had a few small ones, but I got a full sleeve and I got most of my leg done also after I finished the book.
1: Well the reason I thought that was that when we had lunch I noticed that you had tattoos. But maybe those are like
2: those are book tattoos. tattoos. That is what okay. we, that, okay. that is what we call <laughs> corrections in <and> ink. <laughs> like,
1: Fair enough. Okay. <laughs> I want to start just by reading a couple of lines from your book. You say at one point, jail is its own kingdom. The basic rules of engagement do not apply here. And I think so much of what is helpful and fascinating about this book is the way in which you back up that kind of thesis that you have But I want to start by talking about where you grew up and kind of trace your path a little bit as a young person, because I think that'll be important for understanding what happened to land you in prison.
2: I grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, in the heart of Amish country. Uh, My dad was a lawyer and my mom was a teacher. It was a pretty normal upper middle class upbringing, except for one thing, which was that I was a competitive figure skater. And from a young age, I was leaving school early every day to go to the rink to train. In high school, I was leaving school around 10 or 11 every morning, and I would be at the rink training until about 6. And I skated pairs, which is where... The guy, like, throws you around and it looks all dangerous and shit. Am I allowed to swear on here? I think so. You know, we were good. We competed at Nationals twice in 2000 and 2001. And um, after our second year at Nationals, my pair partner decided to branch out and find another partner. And I fell apart at that point. Because in figure skating, there are so many more uh, women than there are men that, you know, he could find a partner the next day whereas for me it could be you know a month or six months or a year and in a sport like figure skating where you know you age out of it pretty quickly a year seemed like forever i thought that this meant the whole life i knew was over my sort of whole future i'd envisioned for myself my uh social circles you know the thing i was obsessive about and in love with and did every day uh it felt like that was all my whole identity was disintegrating I mean obviously looking back I that was not the case but at 17 I did not realize that I fell apart I ended up diving headfirst into self-destruction and I was already fairly unstable at that point I'd been struggling with um, depression and eating disorders for years pretty seriously But after my skating career fell apart, I pretty quickly then dove into drugs. And to give you the very abridged version, that is what I ended up doing off and on for the next nine years until I ended up in prison.
1: The part of your book that's about those nine years is dark and I would assume very honest. Um, I mean, you really talk about how much trouble you were having just like navigating the basics of life and some of the bad relationships you were in and I wonder as you look back on that whether it feels like there was this kind of inevitable path to punishment in prison or whether you feel like you just had some really bad luck when you finally got arrested
2: I I think 17 year old me did not think I would be alive by 26 to get arrested and end up in prison so
1: In between here, you start college at Cornell, which is honestly kind of amazing and I think goes to your um, incredible hustle. And what I mean by that really is like you're just such a dogged pursuer of whatever activity you're doing. And so when getting into college was what you were concentrating on, you did that too. So you get arrested while you're still a student and you wind up in Tompkins County Jail. And this is in 2010. One of the things that you write about when you get to jail is this idea that what keeps you up at night is this question, did the fact that you ended up here say that you're a bad person? Does it mean you're bad, or does it mean you're just bad at life? And I wonder what you remember about looking back on that particular time and how these questions were kind of haunting you.
2: I mean, I think that the other thing about struggling with these questions in the early days after getting arrested and ending up in jail is is that everything's a little bit foggy on top of it. So it's also really hard to even separate the question and the answer and the question and reality. Um, and part of that was, of course, because I came in pretty high and I was coming off drugs for the first couple of weeks. But, you know, part of that is also because... Being locked up is so inherently traumatizing, I think, in a lot of ways that people aren't necessarily aware of. And also it's so disorienting in some, you know, pretty significant and some pretty subtle ways too. I I think the shift to having so little agency is a lot more disorienting than you might expect. And the constant threat of things like solitary confinement or just arbitrary punishments of any variety even little things like sometimes if you you know if you ask a guard what time it is they might just completely lie and make up a completely different time just to fuck with you so something as simple as asking what time it is can be really disorienting so when you're also trying to struggle with these like very fundamental questions about who you are and what you've done and and whether these things reflect on you as a person or in what way they reflect on you as a person. It's like trying to have this sort of self-discovery in, you know, like your Alice in Wonderland. And um, it's hard to even figure out if the things you learn about yourself will translate to the real world afterwards.
1: So you're in this jail and there are a lot of things about this jail, as you're saying, that. Are awful. On the other hand, you were able to write a ton. You kept a journal. You were doing the crossword puzzle. You were managing to run several miles every day, just like by jogging up and down the corridor. And then you start to fear that you're going to be boarded out. Can you explain what that is and why that was such a a potential problem?
2: Yeah. So in the jail I was in at that point, they had more inmates than they did cells which is a pretty common problem in a lot of jails and prisons and whenever they had too many people they would send the extras to another county and usually they would start with the women because they just had fewer cell blocks designated for women so if you were in the tompkins county jail for you know in 2010 but also many years before it many years after you were sort of under a constant threat of getting sent to another county which was so much worse than it would sound first of all You know, there's little things like you lose all your property, like you can't take anything with you. So if you've got shampoo, if you've got, you know, stamps, if you've got food, like any of these sort of basic things you can't take with you, you often can't take with you books. If you have money on your phone account that doesn't come with you either so you get there and you can't make phone calls and your loved ones aren't going to be on your approved phone list at the new jail and the calls are going to be more expensive and your lawyers not on your list and you can't necessarily make legal calls you usually can't get visits right away and even if you can your family has to drive further. But beyond all that, the thing that was, you know, that I think we were all most worried about was that when you got boarded out to another jail, they would put you in solitary for the first um, anywhere from three days to two weeks, depending on which jail you went to. And, you know, that is, I mean, solitary confinement is, um, you know, that's something I still have nightmares about um, more than 10 years later. The first time that I was in solitary was being boarded out. Afterwards, I just became so terrified of getting boarded out again. And it seems like such a simple administrative thing to just send an extra person to a different jail. But, you know, the consequences for that person are so much deeper than I would have ever guessed before I, you know, I was actually living through it.
1: Right. I mean, that comes across so clearly in the book. And I was thinking about the way in which, you know, solitary confinement is a form of torture. And yet it's also just like a routine part
2: of how these facilities are administered. It is. I think a lot of people think of solitary and they think, oh, I like spending time alone. Solitary is just like, you know, checking out, taking a break. It's like getting some time alone. It does not feel that way. Or at least it did not to me. I think about this a lot now because I cover death row and those guys are in solitary for decades sometimes. One of the things that solitary does is it takes away some of the most fundamental things about what it means to be human. So much of how we define ourselves as people is based on how we relate to and interact with other humans and also sort of how we make decisions and choices and take actions and when you are alone in a cell with four walls you're not interacting with other people you're not taking any actions or making any decisions and all of these things that sort of are at the core of how you define yourself as a human are just suddenly taken away and it's like you're you know just a a, it's like you're a brain in a vat or just sort of a a mind a, a mind in a box
3: Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... One of the ways in which you write this book is you're kind of crisscrossing back and forth between the experiences you're having in jail and prison and then reflecting back on your life and how you got there. I was really struck by a passage you wrote about your parents. You were describing how you're in college, you have this um, super shitty boyfriend, and sometimes you're like on the verge of homelessness, except that your parents are paying your rent and they're paying your tuition. You say that they couldn't decide for sure whether you were sober, which is what you were telling them, but that you don't think looking back that anything they did by supporting you was enabling. You write, I think it saved my life. School was my last tenuous connection to any belief in my own future. Without it, I would not have found much reason to live." And you think that your parents kind of realized it and that was part of what they were doing. And I just wanted to ask you, you know, what this leads you to advise families um, when they have someone who's using drugs in this really self-destructive kind of way?
2: This is definitely the question I get a lot from parents is, you know, they want to know if what they're doing is the right thing. And I mean, I think there's not blanket advice here you know your own family's scenario, but, you know, this idea that any sort of support is enabling, I just don't think is productive because this is to some extent a matter of harm reduction and preventing worse outcomes. Sure, that doesn't mean give your kid a thousand bucks to go get high or whatever, but I think there's also a balance between like, you know, not actively furthering someone's addiction and supporting the non-addicted actions they're taking right so like I was in I was in school and that you know paying for tuition isn't paying for heroin you know so I mean I think if you're separating those things and and supporting the, the positive parts of someone's life I guess that's a better way to say it you can support the positive parts of someone's life without furthering their addiction
1: You write a lot in this book about some of the other women you're doing time with. And I wonder as you look back, if there is a particular portrait that stands out to you, someone you think about a lot, either because they represent a whole group of people you spend time with, or because you're wondering what they're doing and how they're doing, um, whether they're still in prison or on the outside.
2: So I keep in touch with a decent number of these people that I, you know, met on the inside out of the people who I did time with and, um, are named. She's the only one that, you know, is alive and named because everyone else, they changed their names if they're still alive. But Stacy Burnett was, uh, I'm not sure she would be uh, sort of representative of a lot of people. I think in a lot of ways she was an exception, but, you know, she was such a, such an inspiring person when I was, in prison. And it's been so wonderful to see her get out and thriving. Um, She was someone who was a jailhouse lawyer, which, you know, I think is a concept that people have heard of, you know, you've seen them on TV or whatever, like someone who's filing motions for other inmates. But one of the things that is not conveyed on TV, or in movies usually, is the risks of doing that. Because at least in New York, you could go to shoe for have you could you know you could be put in solitary for having someone else's legal paperwork in your possession. So, acting as a jailhouse lawyer, helping people who were you know who English was not their first language, or they were not literate, or just not good at understanding the law, helping them with even the most basic of things could land you in solitary. And you know, Stacey did it again and again. And I just I was so. I was so impressed by that at the time because I was so terrified of solitary. I mean, I, it to me, it felt like torture. And she was risking that to help other people who didn't have the resources to just defend themselves on some really basic points in this system.
1: In 2011, you got transferred to prison. You were at Bedford Hills in New York State. And um, without sort of romanticizing any part of this experience, you describe a kind of moment of relief at the prison when some of the women you were doing time with like just figured out how to give themselves a kind of moment of joy one day. What happened that is vivid in your memory?
2: I had made one friend in prison at that point and uh, we'd only been there, I don't know, a week or two. And we went to the gym And there were stair steppers in the indoor gym there at Bedford. And we were on the steppers next to each other. And the radio was playing. And the Kelly Clarkson song came on, Since You've Been Gone. And, like, the first, you know, the first few lines go by. And then when it gets to the chorus, like, the whole gym started singing along at once. Like, just shouting out the chorus. And it was like a, a flash mob, but in prison. And it was, I was so shocked because these seemed like such hardened women who had, you know, this was at a maximum security prison. And I was new, so this was, you know, not at all what I was expecting. It seemed like I was imagining it. And I looked at my friend and I was just like, we just sort of looked at each other in confusion like, is this really happening? But it seemed like such a joyous outburst. And there are moments like that in prison. Like, your average day is sort of boredom punctuated by, you know, bad things and fear and terror. But there are moments of joy. And I do think it's important to recognize them also, because that's also part of life. And the sum of prison can still be horrible, even if there are these moments of humanity with people figuring out how to steal these moments of joy in these places that are essentially built to prevent that.
0: Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too?
1: One of the things I think the United States especially struggles with are second chances for people who commit crimes. Can you explain the sentence that you got and, you know, how it turned out to be in the end, I think relatively brief, if that's a fair way to put it, um, and what could have happened to you instead?
2: Yeah, sure, totally. I think this is an important point. So I got sentenced to two and a half years in New York, for a nonviolent crime, for that kind of sentence, you do five-sevenths of your time. So I did 21 months. I was lucky in a few ways. One is just the timing of it. I had been arrested in 2010, which is just after they'd begun dialing back the very draconian Rockefeller drug laws. So had I been arrested under the old laws, I would have been doing 15 to life, and I would still be in prison and not even eligible for parole yet. Yep. Um, I think about that a lot. I was also lucky in terms of the geography of it. I was arrested in a pretty liberal, progressive county, and I think had I been arrested a county over, you know, it, I probably could have gotten ten or twenty years. But you know, I was also lucky in the sense of of being privileged. Um, you know, I obviously racial privilege has a huge role in the criminal legal system, and you see that at every step along the way. I think if I'd been a person of color, I can look at so many instances over the nine years that I'd been using in which I'd had interactions with police that I think could have gone very differently. Had some of these interactions ended in an arrest instead of an officer just sort of letting me walk away, I could have walked into that last arrest in 2010 with a much longer record, and that might have qualified me for a much harsher sentence, regardless of the geography or the timing or what the DA felt about that particular case. Just a longer criminal record alone would have qualified me for a you know more substantive sentence. And then, of course, when you get to prison, there's been some reporting about how in New York in particular, uh, the Times actually did some great reporting around this in, I think, like 2016-ish. Once you get to prison, uh, people of color are more likely to be getting disciplinary tickets and, you know, more disciplinary tickets means more time in solitary, which means you're not completing your programs. And they're also less likely to be looked on favorably by the parole board. And, you know, the result is that people of color can end up getting longer sentences, serving more of those sentences and then being less prepared to get out and have done more time in the end. So. I think there's a whole lot of ways in which this could have gone a lot worse for me.
1: You are one of the people who have gone to prison and never gone back. And that's something we worry about a lot as a system, our rate of reoffending, the degree to which jail and prison turn into this kind of revolving door. What were the things that were important for grounding your reentry back into the outside world?
2: One of the big things for me was finding something else to be obsessive about. You know, I had been obsessive about skating growing up, and then I'd sort of filled that hole in my life with heroin and been obsessive about that. And then getting into reporting in, in an area that I could be so passionate about, I think helped so much. I know that so many people, you know, whether or not they've done time, are not necessarily lucky enough to find a job that they are deeply passionate about or a career field that they are, you know, deeply passionate about. For me, I think that's made such a difference in feeling like there's, you know, actually something significant to lose if I'm were to go back to that.
1: And can you talk about how that started? I mean, someone had to hire you as a reporter who took that chance, and
2: why? Um, yeah, a woman named uh, Glennis Hart took that chance. I I'd been out for I guess around a year at that point, and I got a call from someone that I used to get high with, and you know, he said that his friend was an editor at the local newspaper and was doing a story on on women who got boarded out. And she wanted to talk to some, you know, people who'd been through that experience. And he said, hey, you know, I think you'll like each other anyway. And so she drove out to where I was living, which was, you know, way out in the country at that point. And She came out to interview me, and at the end of the interview, she said, you know, hey, you know, I googled your work. Uh, You seem pretty good. You want to try writing for us? I think she meant stuff I'd written for the college newspaper, presumably. But in any case, I I mean, I I was thrilled. Those first few months after getting out were extremely difficult, trying to sort of get a foothold again and figure out what a path forward looks like. And this seemed like my first chance at a legitimate job. I went and I started covering town board meetings in towns with like three, four, or 5,000 people and watching them argue about, you know, backyard chicken ordinances and the size of the new salt barn and things like that. But I loved it. It felt like for the first time in a long time, I was doing something that actually had value for people. And, um, you know, from there, I eventually got hired full time and kept at it and then, you know, moved to the New York Daily News and eventually came here to Texas uh, when I started at the Houston Chronicle. And
1: along the way, you started covering a lot of people in jail and prison. How did you come to be doing that? And what did you feel like you were bringing to that work
2: based on your own experience? I think it wasn't apparent from the outset to me that I was going to bring anything particularly useful to that work. It almost seemed like uh, it was just trite for the felon to be covering the felons. And I ended up writing about criminal justice initially when I was at the New York Daily News and a more senior reporter Ruvain Blau was the Rikers Island reporter at that point and I had pitched a story, I think, about the an uptick in the use of solitary confinement. And my editor was like, Oh, you know, this is Ruvain's beat, I'm gonna have to introduce you to Ruvain. And Ruvain was amazing and, you know, took me under his wing and much later uh, told me, you know, I think he saw something that I didn't. Like, I think he understood intuitively that my background would be helpful in a way that I did not immediately see. So he would loop me in on stories he was doing and be like, hey, do you want to go, you know, do this interview on Rikers Island or whatever? And in in one of those, which was an interview on Rikers Island, I ended up going to interview this woman who uh, said she'd been raped by a guard. And when I got there, I, you know, I realized that she'd been upstate before she'd been to state prison previously. And we compared DIN numbers, I, which is prison ID numbers and realized that we'd gone through Bedford at the same time that we'd actually been in prison together. And I interviewed her about her experience and we talked about people we knew in common and we talked about, you know, what all of this means as someone who's, who's been through it. We we both knew that I had a certain baseline level of understanding of her world and what she was going through. Afterwards, Ruvane and I wrote the story and eventually the officer that was involved, uh, you know, did get convicted and... I realized that, you know, this was the sort of thing that my particular experience was helpful with because the people that I was writing about understood intuitively that I could see them as people. And I think for decades, media didn't do that by default. Like, sure, some individual reporters did, but I think that a lot of reporters end up seeing people on you know people on the inside as sort of numbers or cases and not really beginning from the starting point of assuming that they are also human.
1: You move on to the Houston Chronicle, and while you're there, prisoners start to write to you about this particular anguish they're experiencing that involves their teeth. One of them is a man named David Ford. Can you tell us that story and how you covered it?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, I was talking to two murderabilia dealers, which are guys that, you know, sell like serial killer swag, hand tracings and, you know, fingernails and hair clippings from people who've been convicted of murder and serial killing. And because of that, they have a lot of contacts with people on death row. And that's why I was meeting them because I was just starting to cover death row and I wanted to have, you know, more contacts there. And as I was talking to them, one of them mentioned that he'd heard that everyone was going to get dentures. And I was just shocked because in New York, people who didn't have teeth got dentures. So it didn't occur to me that this was different in Texas. And, you know, he explained that, in Texas, even if you didn't have teeth, you you didn't get dentures. They would just, um, you know, blend your food up in a blender and pour it in a cup and serve it to you that way. And, um, you know, he said that was going to end. Um, that turned out not to be true. Um, it was true that they wouldn't give you dentures. And it was true that they would blend your food up and put it in a cup, but it was not true that they had any plans to change it. And when I started trying to find people who'd been impacted by this. I, I started by writing the one guy that the murder billiard dealer had told me about, but then I started asking around and trying to find more. And I would, everyone that I would write, I would tell them, Hey, tell all your friends if they can't get teeth or if they've tried to get teeth and not been able to get them, you know, tell them to write me. And one of the guys who uh, was told to write me by one of his friends was a man named David Ford and he ended up being the person that was sort of the lead example in this story. I went and I interviewed him, got a picture of him with, you know, his toothless mouth and I spent about a year reporting out the story trying to get data to quantify how many teeth they were or weren't weren't giving, trying to get past policies to show what had changed talking to experts about sort of what is the standard and what is best practice and, you know, asking for copies of grievances from men who hadn't been able to get teeth and had filed grievances. And after about 11 months of reporting, I I wrote this story and um, before I even published the story, the prison system started working on trying to get teeth for David at least. Um, So, you know, my reporting from the outset, spurred them to take action on that. After the story came out, there was one state senator. He pushed the prison system to change their policies. And within a matter of months, they announced that they were going to be getting 3D printers so that they could begin 3D printing dentures on site at one of the units. I ended up going back and interviewing David a couple months probably after I first talked to him. And You know, in my second interview, he had these beautiful, shiny teeth. And a few months after that, I went and I watched them print up some 3D printed teeth for people. Since then, you know, TDCJ, the Texas prison system, has continued giving some people teeth, not nearly everyone who needs them. But, you know, hundreds of people have teeth that wouldn't otherwise. Carrie, your book is
1: engaging and absorbing. And I'm really hopeful that it's going to reach beyond the audience that sometimes I think we both feel limited to for stories about injustice and people who are in prison. When people read this book, what is a small thing they can do to try to make people's lives who are
2: caught up in the system of injustice we have a little bit better? So when people are looking for a small thing, I usually tell them books, like people in prison, people in jail need books. It's hard to get books, which can be the sort of one positive thing and escape and sort of one clear way to better yourself. I've done that by tweeting about it and having just strangers message me and I'll send them a name and people can send books to prisoners. But in this case, in particular, I wanted to make sure that my book could get to people who need to see it, people in prison, people who want to see that there is a life after prison and that the possibility of a second chance exists and that there are people who've been through what they've been through and are, you know, willing to be a voice. And so to that end, I have managed to figure out a way to crowdfund copies of this book for prisoners. And there's a page on Porchlight where you can order copies of the book that will go to prisoners. I have some prison book projects that are interested. I have, you know, names of prisoners who wanted copies and I am just starting to circulate this order form that you can buy and pre-order a copy. There's some discounts, like 20% off or something, but you can pre-order a copy that will be earmarked for a prisoner. We
1: will for sure link to all of that. I also encourage listeners to follow Carrie on Twitter. If you get anywhere near Twitter, she's one of the best people to follow. She's actually like genuinely funny um, and good at it, which I would not say about almost... Anybody. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Carrie Blakinger's new book is called Corrections in Ink. Carrie, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you sell gazillion copies and have <laughs> just like the best book tour ever. Thank you. This episode of Gabfest Reads was produced by Jocelyn Frank. Tweet us your book suggestions at Slate Gabfest. Which titles are you looking forward to later this summer? Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, yeah. and Ben Richmond is the senior director for podcast operations. Yeah. I'm Emily Bazelon. I'll be back with you on Thursday with the Political Gap Fest with David and John. Thanks
3: so much for listening.
0: Okay, round two.
3: Name something that's not boring.
0: A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh?
3: Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
4: Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th.